Hey, hey, Prime members, talking to you. You can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. If you feel like your business is drowning in inefficiencies, it might be time to decode the problem and break it down by the numbers. Let's start with 37,000. That's the vast community of business owners who've embraced NetSuite. 25, that's the number of years that NetSuite has been revolutionizing financial workflows and accelerating success. Which brings us to one. NetSuite offers tailored solutions, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Unlock the power of NetSuite today. Download our acclaimed KPI checklist for free. Just head to netsuite.com slash cbs. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Welcome to the CBS This Morning Podcast. I'm Mireya Villarreal, a CBS News correspondent. No parent wants to see their child suffer, and Miguel Sancho is no different. In his new book, More Than You Can Handle, a rare disease, a family in crisis, and the cutting-edge medicine that cured the incurable, Miguel chronicles his family's journey. From their two-month-old baby being diagnosed with a rare and lethal immune deficiency, which led to six years of quarantining, the groundbreaking medical procedure that would help his son Sebastian live a normal life. A journalist for over 20 years, he's worked for ABC and CBS News. Miguel joins me now via Zoom. Miguel, thank you so much for being with us today. It's an honor to be here and to be able to share a little bit of our story with your audience. You were writing, uh, chronicling kind of your journey personally while you're doing all of this big stuff professionally. Um, I can't imagine that that was easy for you. Well, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, kind of write therapeutically, and uh, there's a, a lot of value in that. Uh, when it came time to actually write a book that was had a deadline and everything, and all our kind of journalists' uh, set of skills kind of had to be applied to this thing and get serious about it, yeah. Um, so I ended up, you know, like a lot of people do, writing the book in the off hours. Um, and the irony, of course, is that it chewed up so much of my free time that I usually spend you know enjoying myself with my family so I wrote a book about my family and I ended up during that time spending a lot less time with books and with my family but now it's uh, it's over and um, we're kind of enjoying this exciting time this is the first time I've written a book so I'm all new to this and um, it's kind of fun I think what will draw people in, you know, about about this book is really the struggles as a family that you mm-hmm. go through um, and then how you cope with that. And so I guess we can kind of start from the beginning. When did you first realize that Sebastian was having issues? Yeah, he was born uh, May 1st, 2012. And then about seven or eight weeks after that, he started getting a series of these mysterious and very troubling infections that required of course, uh, medicines and treatments and uh, hospital stays and uh, minor surgeries, actually, to uh, deal with some abscesses that he got. And, you know, I do want to say that so many other people have had it so much tougher than we did. So I don't want to present myself as somebody who's, you know, had the most extreme um, journey by any means. But I think any parent who's had a kid, a small kid, an infant in the hospital, uh, can relate to that overwhelming feeling of helplessness, and anxiety, and um, just kind of gnawing unfairness that, you know, uh, you couldn't get anything more innocent than a newborn child than to have to be subjected to, um, you know, obviously very professional and uh, tender care, but still it's a very serious thing, putting a, a little baby through uh, surgery. So this mystery bedeviled not just us, but literally, you know, a dozen 
very competent, very skilled medical professionals. And it was only after my wife, Felicia, who's very much the hero of this story, kind of insisted that we explore the possibility of an immune deficiency. And she took him to an immunologist. And the book, I think, hopes to kind of introduce people to this fascinating world of immunology, which is kind of the it science of the year now because of COVID, um, and the kind of medical detective work that goes into teasing out, tweezing out a exotic diagnosis from a constellation of what might look like common symptoms. And that's precisely what this immunologist did. And um, when my child was about five months old, Sebastian is his name, um, we got this news. I think that's important to kind of pivot into is this idea that you have this diagnosis. It is a rare disease. How do you handle it as parents? Uh, I, I would imagine uh, reading, reading from the book, it didn't go over that well. Yeah, the, the short answer is uh, not particularly well. Uh, I think there's a stereotype out there that parents who get hit with this kind of diagnosis after the initial shock just automatically tap into this infinite reservoir of strength and um, commitment and virtue and you know, martyred parenting. And certainly a lot of people do that. And I salute them. Um, I was not one of them. You know, this thing, when we got the diagnosis, um, just completely upended everything that I thought that our lives were supposed to be about, uh, everything that I thought our future was going to hold. You know, all the plans. When you have a child, it's inherently an optimistic act, right? You're, if you think the world is going to end in three months, you're probably not going to get pregnant that way, right? Um, so if you have a child, you're making a wager of sorts on the future. It's an inherently optimistic act. And when something like this hits you, everything that you kind of banked on and bet on gets wiped off the table. You were so angry. I was very angry um, in a selfish way that this was not, you know, my children, you know, were supposed to be super kids, of course. And um, <clears throat> so it kind of was a, a blow to the ego. And then, like I said earlier, just the inherent unfairness of having, you know, to observe a child. Of course, it was even more intense than it was my child, but watching any innocent child suffer to that degree and knowing that it's going to be a lifelong thing um, is infuriating um, for if, if you believe in anything like a just world. How rare is... Sebastian's disease and what was the reality of treatment? Yeah, so great question. Um, his disease is called CGD, which means chronic granulomatous disorder or disease. And basically what it meant is, and this is what the immunologist determined through a series of very sophisticated tests, that one particular cell in his immune system, very important cell called the neutrophil, um, which has the function of fighting off a handful of very important um, bacterial and fungal infections, it wasn't working. Um, and as a result, he had no immunity to these infections that you and I um, can kind of deal with pretty easily. So this happens. It is a monogenetic mutation on the X chromosome that occurs in about one out of every 250,000 births. Um, and it was rare, of course, but also it was a total surprise for us because there had been no history of this in, um, in our family, my wife's family, largely by dint of the fact that there hadn't been um, you know, any male children born with the thing. So um, it was a complete shock and we were essentially given the options of 
kind of crossing our fingers and waiting for a miraculous gene therapy to come around the corner, which isn't that absurd, uh, as, as you might very well know. There's this ongoing CRISPR revolution that's making some of these gene therapies now you know, very much a reality. But at the time, it was essentially try to manage the disease with a series of medicines and environmental restrictions and uh, other kind of expected regular hospitalizations, or try the one avenue of proven curative treatment, which is itself one of the most arduous, lengthy, and painful medical procedures uh, known to mankind, which is commonly known as a bone marrow transplant, officially known as a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and what is de facto an immune system transplant. It's the eradication of the existing immune system with intensive chemotherapy regimens, and then the building up of a completely new one from scratch using a precisely matched donor cell unit. I think I might be jumping forward just a little bit, but I, but, but just to ask, so I know where we're going here. I mean, did you choose to have that treatment done in the beginning or was it almost kind of like, let's wait and see and let's try all these other things in between? Well, precisely. So, and of course, a bone marrow transplant is this very daunting, painful ordeal. So part of us just didn't want to do it at all. You know, and when there were periods as Sebastian did get medicines for his uh, condition, he was able to go, you know, months without anything serious. And we kind of led ourselves to believe that, okay, maybe we can do this. Maybe we can just make this work and it's going to be okay. And we don't have to essentially roll the dice with this all or nothing um, gamble on a, a bone marrow transplant. And that went on for years. And the good news is, he had some infections. He had to be hospitalized off and on, but for the most part, he was okay for a while. How many years was that for him yeah. going through kind of this, you know, I, I don't want to say he was in limbo, but it was kind of like, you know, you guys are, are feeling it out and how many years and how did that affect his childhood really? Well, he couldn't go to preschool. Uh, he couldn't do that much socializing. He was able to have you know, some play dates, he was able to do some things, but the disease is such that you have to avoid some very common aspects of the natural world that we kind of take for granted. It's things like walking on grass barefoot, things like being around hay, things like being around wood chips, which is in every playground, you know, this side of the That would set him off. Because those are potential, exactly. Those contain potential uh, for fungal infection. And of course, you know, people are very familiar with how to get bacterial infections, you know, if you're around other sick people or other things like that. So yes, he, he wasn't fully, you know, when people think immune deficiency, they kind of think, you know, boy in the bubble stereotype. And it wasn't that uh, restrictive by any means, but he was significantly limited. And as a result, for example, most of his kind of social development involved these relationships that he developed with Thomas the Tank Engine trains that he and my wife, uh, Felicia and my daughter and I would play with him, kind of turning them into characters and stuff so that he could have um, a semblance of a, of a social circle. I would imagine that, you know, listen, we, we know that this is a very rare disease. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned that, but but it's, I don't know if it's necessarily the disease itself that you wrote the book about, more the struggle, right? The idea that this is something that not just your son went through, but your entire family. How did this affect you and your wife your marriage, maybe even your work? Yeah. Um, well, uh, again, it, it had a series of ripple effects, none of which were particularly good. Uh, you know, and I think, I think one of the things the book touches on or tries to kind of touch on is perhaps the different way that 
men and women assimilate a situation like this, um, not to kind of just invoke stereotypical gender roles, but it is often the case, and it certainly was the case in our situation, that whereas my wife, you know, who had her struggles, it wasn't like she laughed this off. She, there was definitely lots of crying on the couch and sleepless nights and, you know, all everything you can imagine. But she was able to kind of summon the strength, not only to kind of do the research and think of a plan forward and kind of adopt that primary caregiver role, even though it meant sacrificing what was a blossoming career, um, but also kind of avail herself of the various modalities of self-help that are kind of no-brainers, right? Uh, I, on the other hand, tried a number of things that perhaps other men might try that I would not recommend. Uh, that includes denial. It includes you know, kind of stoicism, trying to kind of take a tough guy attitude that um, this is just an endurance test and I'm not going to let it rattle me. Um, I tried workaholism, which, uh, again, is a very kind of fickle and uh, unreliable solution. You know, people, people who have kind of chaos in the domestic situation will often kind of run to work as a place where there's order and stability and you have a little bit of status and maybe a little bit of control, maybe a little bit of authority. Um, and that is dangerous. That's not uh, a solution. It's not the way to go. So ultimately, after basically, you know, kind of skirting the foothills of, uh, of divorce and, uh, you know, our, our marriage having you know, serious issues, uh, I did finally start kind of going on a diagnostic odyssey of my own to, to find something that worked. And the short answer is I tried everything. And um, it was only by kind of trying everything and taking a surround the football approach to the whole thing that uh, we were able to kind of regain enough stability to move forward and that I was able to kind of execute my responsibilities as a father, as a husband. Listening to you talk about not just Sebastian's suffering, but yours as well, the struggles that you guys go through as a family. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's something that I think you write in the book, and I might be just kind of paraphrasing it, but you talk about, you know, give suffering its place. Mm -hmm. What, how does, how does that break down for you? Well, it devolves back to what I tried to do at first, which would be a stoic and adopt this attitude that, you know, suffering isn't real or suffering isn't uh, to be accommodated, it's to be denied and repressed and uh, conquered. Um, but the fact of the matter is, and this is not my idea, this is something that, you know, many of the world's uh, major religions uh, profess, right? That under the right circumstances, with the right interpretation, with the right mindset, suffering can serve a purpose. Um, my wife is a practicing Christian uh, to, with a degree of um, kind of faith that frankly I lacked. So that kind of created its own um, kind of axis of friction. Um, but I also adopted uh, a, a practice of meditation that speaks to this phenomenon of suffering and what we do with it. And uh, then aside from one's kind of mental or faith practice, just observing what was going on in the pediatric bone marrow transplant unit where we were essentially entombed for two months um, while this transplant was going on, you see this incredible suffering taking place around you. And it's heartbreaking, not just your child, but other children. Not every child makes it, okay? Not every child makes it but you also see some of the most transcendent and intense acts of love that you'll ever see. And it's the caring 
and it's the brilliance of the doctors. And it's also their ability to take chances to save lives that are really like on the margin. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, it's, it's common and it's appropriate in many cases to crack on the American medical system. It's not perfect, obviously. But one of the reasons people come here for advanced treatments um, and specifically come to the Duke University Hospital for things like pediatric bone marrow transplants is because we have doctors here who are, really to, who are willing to rock and roll a little bit, right? Who are willing to try experimental treatments and willing to kind of push the envelope of the possibilities, even if those choices might lead to um, subpar outcomes. So all of which is to say, both the kind of philosophical mindset approach to suffering and being up close and witnessing it intensely was very educational and uh, transformative for us. You've given us a little sneak peek at uh, at really what happens and the choice that you guys made after uh, it sounds like a few years of, of going back and forth with different, like managing, basically managing the illness versus trying to find the fix and the cure for it. And so um, I, I have to ask, it sounds like obviously he did get the transplant, the bone marrow transplant. How is Sebastian doing today? Well, great question. Uh, he's wonderful. He's everybody asked because of COVID, right? Do we have to, you know, wrap him in plastic before we send him out of the house? And the answer basically is no, he essentially has, and I'm going to speak hyperbolically, but he essentially has like a bespoke, you know, Cadillac Escalade immune system now that he can road test at will. Um, And after, you know, years of, you know, worrying about his health, it's just a wonderful uh, relief. Interesting thing, though, is that the process, this is one of the kind of most fascinating things about the science. And I, I do want people to know that the book is part science and kind of medical uh, mystery as well as it is, you know, our personal journeys and all the emotional stuff. But one of the fascinating phenomena of bone marrow transplant that I didn't understand at all is that at the end of it, if it's successful, you create an organism that has two different types of DNA within the same body. I mean, it's almost like a CSI uh, episode, right? Where, you know, if, there, if my someone were to commit a crime and leave blood at the scene, and then that were your DNA test, and then, then the cops were to come and do a, a swab on his cheek, it wouldn't match. Um, the, the, his blood is, and the cells and the DNA is from the donor, and the rest of his body, most of the rest of his body, is uh, what he was born with. So he's this fascinating, almost magical creature in a lot of ways. And, you know, we see him, he's still very much the kid that we always knew, but, you know, as he evolves, you always wonder, like, what is going on in there? Right. And how is it going to affect him uh, going forward now that he is this kind of transformed and healed um, wonder of science? Writing this book really opens up not just your life, though, but your family's entire life. And you're very raw about all of these emotions that you're going through. Who was this book written for? Good question. So, yeah, you know, part of the exercise journalistically was to kind of take those kind of critical skills that we apply normally dealing with other people's stories and other people's foibles and other people's traumas and seeing if I could actually honestly and without restraint uh, apply those same uh, critical skills to myself. And I think I was you know, pretty candid. Uh, you know, there's plenty of stuff that we left out just to avoid excessive embarrassment. But uh but I think to answer your question, it was a written for people who find themselves overwhelmed by stress, by setbacks, by um, you know unexpected events that 
suddenly leave them in a world where they have no bearing and no point of reference and no kind of skills to figure things out and go forward. But it was also written for people like myself who start books and don't finish them because, you know, sometimes, you know, books can feel like they're, you know, eating your vegetables or they can feel like, you know, an uphill climb. Um, so I very much wanted to write a book that actually, you know, is an engaging enough to the reader that um, if I were reading it, I wouldn't just put it down and go on my phone or go watch Netflix for another two hours. So, um, so yes, it's our personal story, but I don't just assume that because it's, it's about me that I'm so interesting that, you know, people should read it. It's, uh, it's about a, a situation that millions of parents find themselves in. And it's about this really transformative period uh, in our history where, you know, this branch of science, this branch of medicine is doing wonderful things that should give us all hope for optimism, frankly, you know, in a time when the world often gives us cause for depression or cynicism. Um, just learning a little bit about the science uh, for me was one of the ways that I coped and one of the ways that I kind of helped keep it together. You know, knowledge, it's often said that knowledge is power, but I also have come to find that knowledge can bring a kind of peace too. If you just get a better understanding of, you know, whatever, how the body works, how this medicine works, how your case or your child's case is contributing in a bigger sense to the advancement of human knowledge and the ultimate um, decrease in human suffering, hopefully. So it's written for families. It's written for people who want to learn a little bit about science. It's written for people under stress. And I promise you, it's written with a reader in mind um, who has literally 100,000 other things they could do with different time. I have to say, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that I was able to chat with you today because my son had a, an immune situation. Um, he had something called periodic fever syndrome. Uh, mm -hmm. It actually has a bigger, longer name, Pafapa. And it was a struggle and it was hard. And he was very young. And as a parent, I think that you, and especially probably as a journalist, you're like, I just have to know why, why did this happen? And so to read your background and to have a conversation with you about this, it's really enlightening. And I hope that um, parents really kind of are able to sit back and read this and take a few minutes and, and, uh, and, and take it for what it is, you know, so Absolutely. thank you for sharing your journey. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I don't want to probe into your personal life, but I certainly hope that your son is well and you have all the empathy for, for what you guys went through, including having to deal with an unpronounceable rare disease name. They're all impossible. They can't be remembered. They don't make any sense. So, um, you know, I get you there. What's really interesting to me is that to, to hear you kind of say almost again very different, uh, very different diseases. But to hear you say, "Listen, we 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 gave it a shot managing the illness, which is what we did as well." And then one day you just say, "I got to take the leap. We've got to take the leap," you know. And that was really important for him to give him a true childhood, to give him a true life and a true chance. So, absolutely. Go. Well, I'm so happy for you, and uh, I wish you all the best. And again, um, the the maximum amount of appreciation to your audience for the time. And um, I wish everybody the best. Thank you so much, Miguel. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the CBS This Morning podcast. If you want to catch the day's top stories in under 20 minutes, be sure to subscribe to CBS This Morning News on the Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.